the essence here. 1 Timothy 2.9 doesn't mean that women have to wear black clothing and can't use buttons in their clothes, as some people do. But on the other hand, women should put some thought into how their attire affects the people around them, especially the men. We'll consider that and more today on Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Verse by Verse is one of several ministries at Lakeside. Today's lesson is the third in a series based on 1 Timothy chapter 2, about the roles of women in ministry. One aspect of a woman's part in church life that the Apostle Paul addressed was her external appearance, which is a reflection of her internal attitudes. Here's Pastor Steve to explain. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. While you're doing that, let me just have a few introductory comments. In 1958, Dr. Charles Ryrie wrote a book entitled The Role of Women in the Church. It's become a well-known book now, but maybe what's not so well-known is that four publishers rejected this manuscript because they said the subject was not relevant. That was in 1958. But today, the issue of women and the church is one that interests just about everybody. In fact, if you want to have a book published, you probably could write a book on the role of women in the church, and regardless of what you had to say, it would be published because the demand for it is so great. You can read books on it. You can get articles today in just about every and any Christian magazine. Theological journals always seem to come out with this as well. There seems to be no end to the pages written on this subject today. Not back in 1958, though. And I thought about the best way to approach this subject, and I wondered in my mind, should I quote some people? Should I mention articles, go into books, go into a lot of theological journals? And I decided that my concern as pastor teacher is not to find out what others have to say, and certainly not to communicate to you what others have to say, but to teach you what the Word of God has to say. And so we don't want to belabor this point. We really are not interested in the opinions of men and women. We are interested in strictly what the Word of God teaches on this subject, regardless of the fact that many have changed their views and in the attempt to be relevant and in step with society, and I believe they have really uh, adulterated the Word of God. And so I invite you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 through 15. Paul says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite or thoroughly deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Timothy was sent to Ephesus, not necessarily because he wanted to be there, but because Paul needed him to straighten out the church. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 says this, As I urged you, as I entreated you, Timothy, as I begged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange 
doctrines. The problem with the church at Ephesus was a corrupt leadership who were teaching strange doctrines, doctrines that contain myths and uh, legalistic law teaching that they said was equivalent to salvation. Really, Paul sums up the theme and the purpose of 1 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 14 and verse 15. Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed... I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the church. And so the whole theme centers uh, in this book around the problems that went with the church at Ephesus. It's important to understand that this was a church that wasn't functioning as God wanted his church to function because the leadership was corrupt in doctrine, and also in behavior. And as a result of this, the church was corrupt in its theology as well as its behavior. And one of the groups of people that was affected by the corruptness and corruption of the church were the women. It had a great impact on their lives. Men had difficulties as well as women. The church had a problem with some of its women. That is apparent as one studies this letter. Chapter 5 gives us some insight into the problems this church experienced with its women. Chapter 5, verse 2 says this. Well, actually in verse 1 he says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers. And then he says, and, and Timothy, and the younger women as sisters, but make sure they're pure in all purity. Make sure, Timothy, that these young women are behaving in a pure proper way. The implication being that there was a problem there at Ephesus with the women being impure. And so Paul has to add that. Verse 6 gives us more insight. He says in verse 5, Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in, in, in treaties and prayers night and day, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Implication being that there were some women there that were giving themselves over to this type of, of pleasure. Chapter 5, verse 11 says this. Now let me just explain. Apparently, there were a group of women who were called widows indeed. We'll, we'll see this more when we get up to chapter 5. These were women who were godly women. There were older women, widows, left by their husbands, and these were women who apparently, while not being in an official role, I do not believe it would be proper to call them deaconesses, but I believe that these were women who were really an arm of the church. Uh, they perhaps were not uh, paid by the church, but there was an agreement that these women who did not have a family to take care of any longer, nor a husband to take care of, would now minister, perhaps using the gift of helps, and they would reach out and the church would support them. Not necessarily in a paid position type of thing, but it was an understanding that the church would, would handle their financial needs. So he says in verse 10, there are certain qualifications for women like this. But then in verse 11, he says, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. Why? It's very interesting. Nothing wrong with younger widows. He says, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. Now, let's stop there for a moment. There's nothing wrong with a widow getting married. Absolutely nothing wrong. So why would Paul say this, that it's wrong? Because 
Verse 12 explains, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Now, apparently, the problem was not that younger widows wanted to get married. It's a very normal thing and very proper thing. And later on, Paul says in verse 14, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. But it is wrong if the younger widows said that we pledge and we make an oath that we will not remarry. We will serve the Lord in the capacity of being put on the widow's list and in the sense that we will be supported by the church and we will minister as an arm of the church. Apparently, there was some type of pledge, some type of oath that was taken. And when you break that, that's when it becomes wrong. And so Paul said, don't get into the problem in the first place, Timothy. Don't put them on the list. Because they're going to have desires and they're going to get remarried. So there's nothing wrong with this, but they apparently had pledged to help other people and then they went back on their pledge and that's what Paul is saying. But apparently there was a great desire, sensual desires with the younger widows in this church and apparently they could not control their sensual desires. Verse 13 goes on to say, and at the same time, these These younger widows who have sensual desires, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies telling about things not proper to mention. Maybe talking about some of their sensual desires and going on and on and speaking about their fantasies and things of that nature. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach for some. Now watch this. Some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Implication being that they have given way and sway to their sensual desires and not necessarily even in marriage. That's why Paul says, look, I want them to get married so they don't get into immorality because they cannot control these desires. Also, Paul's second letter to Timothy gives us more insight. Second Timothy chapter three, verse six says, for among them. There are those who enter, and he's speaking about the godless teachers, the false teachers. They enter into households and captive weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. And so the the picture of the women at this church, at least many of the women at Ephesus, was, was that they were lacking in purity. They were unfaithful to Christ. They were turning aside to Satan and sensual desires. They were being led astray by their own sensual lusts and desires. This then becomes the background for our understanding of chapter 2. This is very important because apparently these women with a lack of holiness and a lack of purity were coming into the public worship service and were flaunting themselves and drawing attention to themselves rather than focusing on the worship of God. After all, that is what the public worship service is all about. It is not for us to draw attention to ourselves. It is for us to draw together so that we might corporately focus on Christ. And apparently the picture is this. They were flaunting their wealth, displaying their physical beauty to try to look sensually and sexually attractive to men. All of this would simply be drawing attention to themselves and away from from worship. And so 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the divine answer to this problem. This entire letter is, uh, is really a problem letter in the sense that Paul is answering and dealing with the problems of this church. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 is about behavior in the worship service. I want you to understand that. It, is what, it really answers this question. What is appropriate for women in the worship service? 
He has already explained what is appropriate for men. Verse 8 says that of chapter 2, therefore, I want the men. And he's not speaking here men in the generic sense. He's not saying uh, men in the sense of mankind. Sometimes we refer to men uh, or, or men and women as saying mankind. No, this is the Greek word that is males. He said, likewise, I want the men, the males in every place, meaning every church service, every area of the Roman Empire where there's a church service to pray. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The men are to come in with holy hearts and the hands being representative of actions and symbolic of actions. And therefore, they are to pray uh, with a holiness. They are not to come in with a, with a spirit of unforgiveness. They are not to come in with an attitude towards God or with people that would be characterized by dissension and, and disputes. So he says after having addressed the issue of men, that men are to come with holy hands, signifying purity of life into the worship service. Now, he says, the women need to come into the worship service with a purity of life as well. And so chapter 2 is really, and I want you to understand this, because this is so vital to the, the, uh, the interpretation of this passage, that Paul lists how the women in worship should be godly and pure. And he gives us a number of ways in which women in worship can evidence their godliness and purity. That's what the passage is all about. Verse 9 says this, likewise, likewise. That's, that's how Paul starts it. In other words, he is moving on to a new subject, but not really a new subject. It is a continuation of the old subject, and yet it is one related to it, but one Different in a sense. In other words, just as men should come to worship with a pure heart, so women should come with the pure heart too, evidenced by their appearance. Now, how was she to appear? Likewise, he says. Likewise. Likewise what? How is a woman in worship to appear? Well, Paul says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Literally, in the Greek language, it, it could be read this way. They are to adorn themselves in adorning attire. It's kind of a play on words. Adorn yourselves, ladies, in adorning attire. What does that mean? The word for adorn is cosmio, from which we get our word cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan. There is a magazine, uh, a women's magazine, called Cosmopolitan. It is a rather worldly magazine, but that's where it gets its, its name, Cosmopolitan. It really means to put in order, to arrange, to prepare. This is where we get the word cosmos from. It means an orderly arrangement, and so we say it is the world's orderly system. It is the system of Satan, but it is orderly. And so the word adorn means orderly, well-prepared, and well-arranged. It is the opposite of chaotic. It is the opposite of disarray. It is the opposite of chaos. In other words, when a Christian woman comes to work to the worship service, her appearance is to be orderly and it is to be well arranged. In essence, we can say that a woman is to prepare herself by her, not only her heart, but by her appearance before she comes to the worship service. Let me tell you what, how I would translate this in our own vernacular. I would put it this way. Her appearance must be in good taste. I think that is the essence of thought. It must be in good taste. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that because the, uh, the word that's translated clothing, you'll notice in verse 9, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. 
could be understood in a wider sense, and in this context should be understood in a wider sense than just clothing, because it could mean and should mean here uh, deportment, uh, demeanor. In other words, how a woman carries herself, her behavior, her conduct. In other words, she is to look orderly on the outside because she is orderly on the inside. That's the thought here. A woman is to reflect her decency and her orderliness on the outside, what is really on the inside. You see, it isn't that God is totally concerned with external appearances. In fact, God is really not primarily concerned with it. Men and women are concerned with it. For the Bible says, God looketh on the, on the heart, but men look on the outside. But God is simply saying that his concern with the outside is that the outside and external appearance must be a reflection of the internal character, orderly and well arranged, not chaotic, not confused, not messed up. When a Christian woman comes to the church to worship the Lord, she must come with a spirit that isn't chaotic and with clothing that doesn't reflect disharmony in her heart. That is the essence here. You see, worship demands a proper preparation. Just as the men are to prepare their hearts before they lead in the service, so the women are to prepare their hearts so that they might adorn themselves and be reflective of a godly woman. Now this clothing, he says, is to be characterized by modesty and discretion. The rest of verse 9, or at least the, re- the next part, says that uh, the women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Now, we may just pass over those words and say, oh, I know what that means. But do we know what that means? Modesty. What does modesty mean? It's a word that at least we use in Christian circles, but I think we miss out on the richness of it because perhaps we don't go back into a a Greek study guide and find out what the word means. So I'll tell you what it means. The word modesty is a sense of shame that shrinks back from going beyond the proper limits of of a woman. It shrinks back from, from beyond the limits of propriety. It is a proper reserve. In fact, the root of this word means to be ashamed. There is a sense of shame, and I believe the King James Version translates this word shamefacedness. And the thought is this, and I think this is really the intent of it. The thought is that a woman would be ashamed to think that by her clothing she would tempt a man. That's the thought. There is a shame. She, she will not go beyond what is proper. She would be ashamed to even think that she could be a part of putting into a man's mind the wrong thoughts by her appearance. That's what this word modesty really means. But the word discretion also adds to it. Discretion means, now some translate it to think sensibly. And I, I think that that's a part of it, to think to have a sound mind, to think sensibly, but it goes beyond that. Not only is it to think sensibly and have sound judgment, but it also means a self-restraint, a self-mastery of sexual desires. That's how the word was used. It means to have a constant reign upon your passions and your desires. And so it's, it's translated discretion, discreetly, but it's sensible thinking and it's self-restraint. In other words, ladies, what he's saying is when you get dressed for church, Use your head. Dress in such a way that would not and could not possibly arouse a man. And dress in such a way that would reflect that you have a control upon your desires. That's the the thought of this. 
You see, this was the problem at Ephesus, and this is really what gets us into the heart of this issue. The women dressed at Ephesus for worship to attract attention to themselves, and this is indicated by the end of verse 9. Now watch this. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now don't look around to see who's wearing jewelry. That's not, that's not the thought here. There's a parallel verse to this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. And let not your adornment be external only, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. These two passages have been widely misunderstood, wildly, wildly and widely misunderstood. Paul isn't saying that women shouldn't look their best or that they can't be fashionable or that they can't look good. That's not what he's saying at all, nor is Peter saying that. He's not telling Christian women to look drab and dull. He's not condemning the wearing of jewelry or having braided hair. In fact, that was the case, if you notice, the last phrase in First Peter says, nor dresses. Now, I don't know anybody who could support that, if they're to be consistent, if that's what they hold to. No, Paul isn't saying that at all, nor is Peter. Paul is condemning a very serious practice of his day. And I might add, it's a serious practice in our day, maybe not in this church, but in other churches. And that is the overdressing of women and the glamour of her clothes. In that day and age, that overdressedness of women and the glamour of her clothes was equated with sexual looseness and a lack of submissiveness to her husband. In fact, for a married woman to come extravagantly dressed up in public was tantamount to sexual unfaithfulness. That was the message loud and clear to every man in the congregation. In fact, a contemporary of Paul's wrote this, and I quote, There is nothing that a woman will not permit herself to do, nothing that she, that she deems shameful when she encircles her neck with green emeralds and fastens huge pearls to her elongated ears. So important is the business of beautification, so numerous are the tires and, and stories piled up upon uh, her head. Meanwhile, she pays no attention to her husband. Now that's the way it was in Paul's day. Philo describes the appearance of a prostitute, and he says this, her hair dressed in, in curious and elaborate plates, her eyes with pencil lines, her eyebrows smothered with paint, and her costly raiment broided lavishly with flowers, bracelets, necklaces of gold and jewels hanging around her. So you see, there was a certain look in that day which said, I'm available. That's what Paul is dealing with. So you must understand that Paul is addressing the, the action of women being preoccupied with their appearance in order to be attractive to men in a seductive sense. And apparently, and this is the sad thing, it was working. Years ago, a young, newly saved couple started attending my church in Tampa, and when she walked in the door, every head turned her way. What a distraction. To her credit, though, once she learned what the Bible had to say about dress, she came to church with much more appropriate clothing. But for a few weeks there, I was wondering how it would work out and how many men had gotten elbowed by their wives. You've been listening to Verse by Verse and a Bible lesson from Pastor Steve Kreloff about women in ministry from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our website is versebyverseradio.org. I'd like to take just a few seconds to tell you about an opportunity for our visually impaired listeners. 
If you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and want a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 1-800-838-5924. 800-838-5924. Or visit blindbibles.com. This is Jerry Peterson inviting you to come back for our next Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve Kreloff concludes this two-part message on women and how they ought to dress in church. It is a little rude to go to church looking like a slob. It's natural to want to look good for our friends and especially for our Lord. But church is not a fashion show either. Some people, especially women, seem to be trying to outdo each other in their lavish dresses and jewelry. Next time on Verse by Verse, we'll consider real beauty. And it's not something you'll find on a clothes hanger. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. Leviticus chapter 3 talks about the peace offering. Now, this peace offering was not an offering made to get peace between God and man, but to enjoy God's peace. And in this case, where the burnt offering in chapter 1 had to be a male, the peace offering in chapter 3 could be male or female. And this connects to Galatians 3.28, where in Christ 